Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. He's explaining how there are two levels of loving and having a relationship with God. He says, one is a natural love that's inherent, that's innate. The soul yearns to connect like a flame yearns to leaps up and seeks its source. So the soul seeks its source. Since the soul is a, the piece of the, of the divine essence, so it naturally seeks the divine. And it seeks, it seeks its source. And knowing that in its source it is completely nullified, experiencing, feeling that we are all created something from nothing, really essentially we are nothing, and it tries to absorb, become absorbed in its source. This is a natural love, it's an overwhelming love, it's an all-encompassing love. But in order to feel this love, to experience this love, a person has to be very refined. Because other than that, the ego gets in the way. The ego acts as a block, as a screen, that um, the ego pulls us in the opposite direction. The animal within us, the pull of gravity that pulls us down, the natural soul, the soul which is you know, not, not logical, where a person just follows his natural instincts and impulses and where our senses go out the window, our logic goes out the window, it doesn't seek any logical justification for itself. It just is a life of pursuit of pleasure, instant gratification, and that becomes the motivation and the purpose in life. So that soul obstructs or creates a static, doesn't allow us to feel the power and the depth of the divine soul. Unless a person is in a very high level, a person is very refined, a person is a tzaddik, through a tremendous amount of effort, a prodigious amount of effort, sincerity, Torah, mitzvot, self-sacrifice. It's like a person who's so dedicated that he's willing to climb Mount Everest and he pursues his ambition and he, and he overcomes hurdles and obstacles. I mean, this is a very rare individual. It gets very lonely on the top. There's no one around you. Because it takes a person with a tremendous, tremendous effort and dedication and most people are just simply not equipped to live such a heroic life and such a dedicated life. And um, that's the tzaddik. The one, the one or two in every generation. The very special individual that has refined himself and worked on his personality and his character and has overwhelmed through the intermediaries we discussed last week, intermediary of the intellectual soul, the deep thinking soul, the logical soul, which is not the divine soul. The many deep thinkers and philosophers are not divine. But at least a person who's open to philosophizing and to deep thinking and to thinking about life, at least a person that is serious, is open to search, to seek, to discover something more serious, which is the divine. So a person who has allowed the divine soul to filter through the logical soul until it totally overwhelms your mind, that your mind, you become so crystal clear about the truths of godliness that until you reach a point where you can actually almost see it and feel it 
and you understand it in a very deep, penetrating way and comprehensive way, that overwhelms the body until the body becomes refined. And then the godly soul is allowed to filter through the body. That your whole being, your whole body, your whole eye, your whole ego, your whole personality, your whole character becomes sublimated, transformed into divine. And every part of you starts pulling in that direction. That you literally have a temptation. You literally have an urge, a natural urge, a powerful urge to do the right thing, to study Torah, to pursue godliness, to do mitzvah, to, to act kindly, etc. This is the tzaddik. This is one, one in a million. That's the first level of love. Now we get to the other level of love, which really relates to 99.9% of us, the rest of us. So we're holding on the bottom, page 821, the second paragraph from the bottom. The second level is a love which every man can attain when he meditates earnestly, so that its echo resounds in the depths of his heart. It's not enough just to comprehend, to understand, but more importantly, you have to reach a point where it resonates with you, where it touches you personally. It, it echoes back. An echo is when the voice bounces back to you. It evokes a response. How do you know that you really get something, you really understand something very well? When it evokes a response inside of you, something stirs inside of you. You know, when you get that moment, you say, ah, I really get it. Something you may have known for years, maybe decades, and then it suddenly hits home. And suddenly, it's like, now I get it. Now I truly get it. It means there is some internal response to this idea. It's not some abstract idea, interesting idea. Okay, I understand it. Nice, interesting, next doesn't change you, doesn't affect you, doesn't excite you, doesn't move you, doesn't inspire you. That's a shallow understanding. That's a childish, immature level of understanding. Maturity is marked. The mature person, the adult, is not necessarily someone who's brilliant. Many children are more brilliant than some 90-year-olds. But they're children, they're immature. Maturity is the ability to, to, um, to really, really allow something to really sink in, to settle where something really clicks inside of you and it changes you, it moves you, it inspires you. It turns into conviction, where idea turns into conviction and you become very decisive. You become very crystal clear about something until you have a direction and you have a focus, you have a direction, you're centered and you move forward. That ability to be centered and that ability to really let something settle in and sink in, that's maturity. And that takes... That takes focus, that takes concentration, and that's really what prayer is all about. When we pray, we're not learning something new. Matter of fact, the words of prayer are the exact same words we said yesterday, and the day before, and the day before, thousands of times. Prayer, we're not there to learn something new. We're trying to take something that we already know and allow it to really sink in, to settle, that it should move us, it should inspire us, it should challenge us, it should resonate within us. It should, you know, we, should, we should center ourselves and focus around it. And that takes deep concentration, which a child is not capable of doing. Children jump from one thing to the next. They don't have any... It's take a zitzflesh, as you say in Yiddish, to be able to really allow it to sink in, like to pickle the idea, allow it to really settle in, to really soak it in. And that takes time also. There's no shortcuts. It's not that I'm learning, I'm quick, I have a quick mind, and I get it, next. No, it's not a question of being quick. Matter of fact, being quick in this case may be a disadvantage. So many quick minds are very immature. Because they're very quick, but they don't let anything really sink in, really settle, and really 
change and allow them to be transformed or moved by the concept. Not necessarily people with very deep convictions, quick mind, not necessarily people with deep So this is the idea of das, the idea of focus and concentration. So every person has the ability, every has the ability when, if, if he will meditate earnestly, really focus on the idea. That's what we're supposed to do in prayer, really <clears throat> focus and really concentrate 100% until it resonates, until the echo resounds, until you get some feedback. It's like, how do you know that you're really communicating with someone? If you evoke a response, if you're talking and talking and the, the other person doesn't respond, you know you're not communicating. It doesn't necessarily have to be a positive response. The guy's right to punch you in the face. Okay, at least we're communicating. <laughs> at least you know you're communicating. If there's, a, if there's indifference, if there's no response, the person just smiles and continues and next, then you're not, you're not getting anywhere. The real communication is when there's a, a response. You're touching the other person. The other person is responding. So the same, same is true with ourselves. When are we communicating with ourselves if we evoke a response? There's an echo. There's no echo, there's no response, doesn't resonate, then we're not communicating. It's a nice idea, brilliant idea, but so what? It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter. Okay, I continue. Are matters that arouse the love of God in the heart of every Jew in defilement of whether he meditates in a general way, how he is our very life. And just as one loves his soul and his life, so will he love God when he meditates and reflects in his heart that God is his true soul and actual life. As the Zohar comments on the verse, you are my soul, I desire you. Zohar explains that since God is a Jew's, Jew's soul and thus his true life, the Jew loves him and desires him. Okay, so this is a general uh, point of meditation and reflection. When a person realizes what are we looking for in life? What is a person really looking for in life? What would a person give anything in life for? What's the most desirous thing in life? You're really looking for, for life. What's life? Life is passion, energy, excitement. If, if someone offered you an option you know, for a very boring, dull experience, even though you may find yourself in a very rich setting, it, it just won't do it for you. But you're not looking for anything external. You're really looking for something internal. You want to experience, you want to feel passionate, you want to feel excitement, you want something thrilling, something, you know, which is why the, the never-ending search for entertainment. What's entertainment? Entertainment is, you know, you're looking for something to thrill you, something to excite you, something unpredictable, something unexpected, something that will excite you, will interest you, that will... So a person is really looking for, we're looking for in life, we're looking for something intangible, not looking for anything external. Nothing external will really satisfy you. You're looking for some thrill, for some passion, for them, some life. Now, if a person realizes what is the real life, what is the inner life, it's nothing external. The only thing that will really satisfy you is something internal, which is the divine energy. That is, that is the source of life. That is the root of life. That is the source of life. So if a person is really looking for something, for life, for passion, for excitement, for real life, that will only come from within. It won't come from anything egotistical, it won't come from anything external. So all, all materialistic pursuits will not get you, will not help you find what you're looking for. That's why ultimately all materialistic pursuits are ultimately very unsatisfying. 
you know, the more you satisfy it, the hungrier you get, the less satisfied you are. The more a person indulges, the more a person pursues and realizes his materialistic dreams, the hungrier you get, the less, the less satisfied you are. Because that's not what you're looking for. That's not what's going to satisfy what you're looking for. What a person is looking for is something internal, some inner connection, some inner sense of, of, of energy, of life, of passion. And that cannot come from anything external. It can only come from within. And that comes from our, our relationship with, with godliness. That comes because the divine energy, that's really, that's really the inner reality of everything. It's not the external, the body, the physical, the material. It's what's in the inside. It's the divine energy, the divine purpose. That's, that's, that's life. That's the energy that creates us, that animates us, that sustains us. And the stronger, the more you strengthen that connection, the more alive you are. And we see it. It's, it's pretty ironic that if you look, you take people who have totally indulged in the materialism and totally define their life by materialism. You know, after a while, they become very jaded. There's a light that goes out inside of them. You look at the eyes, it's dead inside Meet a, a person, meet a Jew who's connected to Torah, to mitzvot, to a real Jewish lifestyle. There's a sparkle, there's a passion, there's a life, there's an energy, there's an excitement. There's a celebration of life. It's, paradox, it's ironic, it's paradoxical, it's totally unexpected, it's not what you would expect. You would think the person who is free to do anything who can indulge in whatever he wants, is the happiest person in the world. Yet the truth is not so. Or the person who has that inner connection, who's connected through Torah study, and the more, connect, the more Torah you study, the more alive you feel. Because the more you're connected to the source of life, to the divine, to the truth, to reality. And the more mitzvot you do, the more connected, the more linked you are to the source of life. The more kindness you do, the more selfless you are, the more kindness you do, the more, the more genuine you are, the deeper you are, the more satisfied and fulfilled you are. So if a person is looking for life, if a person meditates and reflects on this truth very deeply, will come to realize, what am I looking for? What am I seeking in life? What am I searching? I want to have fun, passion, excitement, thrill. Well, where am I going to find that life? That's something internal. Where am I going to find it? I'm not going to find that... By, any, by indulging in anything external. I'm only going to find that by deepening my inner connection, by connecting with something inner, something divine, something real. So once you realize that God is the source of life, and the root of life, and the source of energy, and the source of life, and the more you deepen your connection to God, through Torah, through mitzvah, through kindness, through good deeds, etc., the more alive you will be, the more alive you will feel, the more pleasure you will feel. So if a person realizes this, then you start pursuing that path. And you pursue that path with energy, with excitement. It doesn't feel like a burden. You don't do it out of guilt. Well, I have no choice. I'm forced to follow this narrow path of Torah mitzvah on the contrary. It's something that you eagerly anticipate, eagerly look forward to. You do it with your whole heart and soul. You love it because you feel, you experience, you realize that this is, this is what I'm looking for. This, will, this is the answer my prayers this is my dream this is the answer to my wish to really live life a deep life a real life passionate life 
an energized life. And the more connected I am to Torah and Mitzvah, the more energized I am. The more alive I am. The more real I am, the more deeper I am, the more genuine I am. So when a person realizes this, it lights your heart on fire. You know, you're not just doing the Torah Mitzvah coldly, detached, mechanically, by rote. You're doing it with, with a flaming, your heart is on fire. You love it. You can't wait to grab a little more Torah, a little more mitzvah, a little more an act of, of kindness and goodness. So a Jew, but again, this doesn't come naturally instinctively. It's counterintuitive. Intuitively, instinctively, we're looking for instant gratification. We're looking for external indul- indulgence that, that you don't have to go to school for, that you don't need any education for. That comes very natural and very instinctive. We're born with that inclination those animalistic impulses. But education is when a person could open his mind and especially could meditate and reflect and, come and think very deeply about it and come to a very personal realization, a, reson- a, resolution, um, a realization that echoes and resonates within you that this is not what I'm looking for in life. What I'm really looking for, what I should really be passionate about is really Torah, mitzvah, godly things, wholesome things. Because whenever a person does something wholesome, you feel like a million dollars. You sleep like a baby. You feel alive. You feel deep, vibrant. Whenever a person does something unwholesome, self-destructive, yes, it feels good for the moment. But at the end of the day, it leaves you feeling a little empty, hollow, shallow. Any external pursuit ultimately leaves you hungry. Leaves you feeling a little empty, hollow, shallow, maybe addicted, self-destructive. But it doesn't doesn't feel 100%. You have to ignore a certain part of you, suppress a certain part of you, and then just indulge in materialism. But when, it, when you do the right thing, every part of you feels great. Not only your divine soul feels great, even your animal soul is very happy. When a person leads a wholesome life, a decent life, you feel very good about it. Every part of you feels good about it. You feel alive. So when you realize that, then, then you start loving. You start looking forward to and yearning and anticipating this, uh, this the Jewish way of life. Torah mitzvah. So you, you study the Torah with love. No one has to push you. You push yourself. No one has to force you. No one, no one has to lift you by your ears. You come yourself. You lift yourself up. And uh, so this is the love that everyone could develop through great deep thinking. It doesn't just happen by itself. Education happens through self-educating, through meditating on it, reflecting on it, until you personalize it, internalize it, and integrate this into your personal life. But this is a love that's attainable. Every one of us could achieve this level of love. God gave us the brains, gave us the mind. We can figure this out. We can think about it, and we can realize it's truth, and it's a truth that resonates with us. It's our truth. That's in a general sense. And now we come to a more specific love. Continue. Or whether. Or whether he meditates in a particular way, when he will understand and comprehend in detail the greatness of the King of Kings, the Holy One, Blessed Be He. For example, he may reflect on the manner in which Hashem fills all worlds and encompasses all worlds, and on how all creatures are as naught before him, to the extent that his intellect and grasp are even beyond. Okay, so what he means here, when he says, according to his level of understanding and beyond, 
We know Maimonides and many other Jewish philosophers describe there are two ways of understanding godliness. One way is a positive understanding. Another way is a negative understanding. Positive understanding is he understands certain aspects of God's greatness. You look at his creation and you're able to extrapolate that you know, since everything in the physical world has a, is like a parallel universe, everything has a divine source, so you can understand that we have love and God's love is infinite, or, or a divine love, a perfect love, a perfect wisdom, divine wisdom. You see the, the infinite wisdom within creation, within science, within the human body. You begin to appreciate the scope and the vastness of God's mind, so to speak. Um, so that's a positive appreciation, a positive understanding comprehensive understanding but then there's a much deeper understanding which, was, which is what we call a negative understanding in other words when you start comprehending that God is infinite there's no way that we can possibly comprehend infinity because we are finite you can't comprehend something that you don't have try explaining to a blind person who's never, who was born blind what, what, the, what sight is all about it's impossible simply doesn't have it within them. So we cannot truly grasp or comprehend anything that's infinite. Our whole frame of reference is finite. We think in terms of words, which are defined, clearly defined concepts, which are clearly defined numbers, concepts, past, present, future. This is our frame of reference. We can't even think beyond it. But we could get a glimpse. We could appreciate. We have enough presence of mind to appreciate the limitation of the intellect, to realize that there is something. There are intimations. God left enough hints. There are intimations that there is something that's way beyond anything, anything we can possibly grasp. Like the modern physicist understands, understands very well the limitations of the human mind. And all of science today is merely approximation. It's approximate descriptions of a very tiny slice of reality, a tiny slice of life, which can no way, shape, or form truly reflect the greater reality. It's like taking a drop out of the ocean, taking it out and putting it, you know, and dissecting it and defining it as if you really understand that drop of ocean. How can you possibly understand this drop of ocean? Taken out of context. The drop of ocean is part of the ocean. But since we can't grasp the whole ocean, so we have to take this tiny drop and we discuss it and we dissect it and we, we compare it, this is what science does. Science realizes that our whole understanding of life, of reality, is literally, we take a drop from the ocean and we're dissecting it and defining it, but it's only approximation because the truth is it's not an accurate description because you can't really remove the drop of the ocean from the ocean. You have to see the whole picture. The whole picture defies human conception, defies human logic. It's infinite. It's beyond our, co- our scope. We simply don't have the tools. We don't have the language to understand and all we have is approximations. Time, space, a relative approximation. Human perspective, approximations, understanding of a very tiny slice of reality when reality itself inherently is infinite and paradoxical. When you go to the quantum mechanics level of the electromagnetic level of, of reality, radiation, it, 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 it's, um, you have waves, you have particles at the same time. This totally blows away our mind, our logical mind. It makes no sense. It's paradoxical. It's squaring the circle. So science understands the, the, the tremendous limitation of the human logic and the human mind. So you gain, when you understand it, you gain a certain sense. Not a true understanding, because we cannot really understand infinity. But you gain a sense 
of something that's infinitely beyond anything that we can imagine. You know, when mathematicians talk about infinite sets and infinite numbers, it's mind-blowing. We don't really understand any of this, but we have enough of understanding to appreciate, to sense that there is something infinite out there, that our whole understanding is so puny and so tiny and so insignificant, and that it's really part of something so vast and huge that you just stand in awe of the presence of, of infinity. So that's what he means, that to the extent that his intellect can grasp, and even beyond his intellect can grasp. When your intellect understands that there is a beyond, that the intellect is so limited and so limiting, but the intellect begins to grasp and is open to the fact that there is something way beyond the intellect. And therefore the intellect doesn't limit itself. The intellect doesn't play God and doesn't claim that it's God. And The intellect has a healthy humility and a healthy respect and is open to the infinite. It's open to the, to the divine, to faith. Where the intellect is not only not a contradiction to faith, but where the intellect actually becomes very open and receives faith and is open to faith. It's not anti-faith, which is the stance of the intellect during the 19th century, during the Enlightenment, Rousseau. They were anti-faith. They disparaged faith. But with the advent of modern physics, today there is such a healthy respect for, for the infinite, for faith, for something that's way beyond our intellect and our grasp. So when a person thinks very deeply about the greatness of God, both on the level that we could possibly understand and comprehend, but also beyond the level of the infinite, when you're starting to touch the infinite, which is way beyond our grasp, okay, skip the next two paragraphs, page 823, the third paragraph, then following his meditation. Then following his meditation... In a particular way, I have a question. Yes. So, so we can't grasp the infinite. Right. But yet we strive to, to learn Hashem's ways. We study Torah. Right. Um, but at some point, you're not supposed to question. But if you, if you can't understand anyway, why not question? What's the... Well, no, I, I there's a barrier there. I mean, there's a... There's I think a, you just answered your question. In other words, the reason you don't, The reason our... Faith, our relationship to God, is not conditional on our understanding. Even if we don't understand, it doesn't change the reality. Because we know the limitations of our understanding. So my relationship to God is not contingent. If I understand, and I feel comfortable, and it makes sense to me, then it's okay. If not, I'm out of here. It's just, the, there is a barrier. We cannot ultimately truly understand. We are so finite and so limited, we cannot truly understand so that, our relation to God, cannot be conditional. Now, how much is 365 times 586? Anyone? Big number. It's a lot. <laughs> it's a lot. We came up with the same. <laughs> okay, so if we can't even figure out something so simple, you think we're going to figure out human life? Which is so infinitely complex? But we strive to do it. We strive to do it, but at the same time, you have to have a healthy, a healthy, healthy sense and appreciation of the barrier, of the ultimate inherent limitation of it. 99.9% of our life of our own body, our own personal experience, happens, happens subconsciously, automatic pilot. It would be impossible for us. It would just overwhelm our mind, our conscious mind. Every time we take a bite, someone just told me his grandfather, at 89, and suddenly he can't swallow food anymore. Turns out that 22 muscles, every time you swallow food, the 22 muscles, 
try to teach someone who can't swallow it. It's almost impossible. It's something we take for granted. As if it's nothing, no big deal. If you think about the mechanics of it, it's just, it's just overwhelming. It's an impossibility. It's so difficult. People, God forbid, who, have, who are challenged, and there are people who, therapists, who try to teach them how to speak. You know how difficult it is to teach someone how to speak? It's almost impossible. You think playing violin is difficult? Try to teach someone who can speak naturally how to speak, how to use the mouth, how to move the mouth. Everything we take for granted, we don't even think about it. We go through our whole lives, we don't even think about what happens when you speak, how you move your lips, which letters come out, which way the tongue touches the palate, the lips move together. You, know, you don't even realize what's going on. 99.9% of our body is an automatic pilot, is unselfconscious. And it's so infinitely complex. Every organ, the listening, hearing, smelling, it's, it's just beyond... And all of it happens simultaneously. So just to give us an idea of something that, 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 that's enough to blow your mind and, and put, your, put your mind in a very humble place, you know, in, a very, in, a, in, in, in perspective. You know, a person shouldn't be so habri and have, you know, be so arrogant and take himself so seriously. I'm in control and I understand. Something I don't understand doesn't exist. What do you understand? You understand nothing. Your conscious mind is so finite, it's so limited. It's the tip of the tip of the tip of the iceberg. It's so, what's underneath the, the surface is so infinitely complex. It's so beyond our comprehension. Our body, you know how many things happen in our body simultaneously? It's beyond, beyond, beyond comprehension. Such infinitely complex and exquisite operations that happen throughout the whole body in one split second. It would, take, it, would take, it would take you a billion years to describe, and that's probably too short, to describe what happens in the body in one split second. So the scale, the vastness and the scale of reality beyond the tiny limited frame of reference, which is our frame of reference, the conscious mind, which is words, concepts, which is linear, which is like taking the ocean and reducing it to a tiny drop of a faucet, drop by drop, which is an absurd representation of reality, which is like one vast ocean simultaneously. It gives you a healthy respect that is so much that's beyond our comprehension. I don't know if it answers your question. Okay. (laughs) Then... Then following this meditation in a particular way, we will contemplate Hashem's great and wondrous love for us, a love that led him to descend even to Egypt, the obscenity of the earth, to bring our souls out of the iron crucible into which the Jewish people had then descended. In other words, after you realize the greatness of God, of God's capacity and his infinity, to the best of your ability, to the maximum of your ability, where the mind becomes open to something, a reality that's way beyond, and you begin to appreciate the infinite depth and scope of, of the infinite. Which, and then you realize that this infinite God, which is beyond comprehension and beyond any limitation and definition and description, this limited God personally entered into a relationship with us, personally schlepped us out of our exile, took us out from the pit, descended into the pit, the pit of the earth, which is Egypt, was decadent, society on earth, and where the Jewish people were stuck for 210 years, and God personally descended, so to speak, and God personally took an interest in us, and He personally took us out from Egypt, and He brought us close to us, and He married us, and He entered into a relationship with us, a covenant with us. When you realize that, you can't help but respond with a love to God, because that's the nature of love. It says like a mirror. The heart is like a mirror. You can try it. You can try an experiment, workshop experiment. Try it. If you love someone in your heart, the other person cannot help but love you back in return. 
it's just impossible. It's like a mirror. Could the mirror help but reflect your reflection back? Show your reflection? No. So too, another heart, another human heart, cannot help but reflect your love. If you genuinely love that person, that other person will love you back. just can't help it. So when you realize God's infinite greatness, and that He took an interest in us, we were at, the, at our nadir, we were at, our, at the abyss, we were at the lowest point in our life, not just materially, but also spiritually. We reached the 49 gates of impurity. We were so distant from God and godliness. We became idolatrous, just like the Egyptians. We were corrupted, we were assimilated, we got lost in Egypt. And yet God loved us, and He, he rescued us, and He redeemed us, and He elevated us, and He washed us, and He cleansed us, and He brought us, brought us to His palace, and brought us to Mount Sinai, and He married us. And How can you not help but respond in kind? God loves us, and He gave of Himself without any reservation. We can't help but respond in kind to love God in return. So this is a very personal meditation. Okay, continue. Which is the Sitra Akra, may the all merciful spare us, to bring us close to him and to bind us to his very name. And he and his name are one, so that by being bound to his name, we were bound to Hashem himself. That is to say, he elevated us from the idea of degradation and defilement to the acme of holiness and to his infinite and bound, boundless greatness. When one has meditated in detail upon Hashem's greatness and his tremendous love for the Jewish people, then, as in water, face reflects face, so does the heart of man to man. Just as one person's love for another awakens a loving response in the other one's heart, so too our contemplation of the ways in which Hashem has manifested his love towards us will inspire within us a love for him. And love will be aroused in the heart of everyone who contemplates and meditates upon this matter, in the depths of his heart, to love Hashem with an intense love and to cleave unto him heart and soul, as will be explained at length in his place. And these two meditations are actually the foundation, form the foundation of the two blessings that we read before the Shema. The Shema is when we fulfill the biblical obligation to love God. But how do you get there? So the rabbis instituted we should introduced the Shema by these two blessings. The first blessing, we talk about the angels. The angels are constantly dancing and singing and saying, singing Kadosh, Kadosh, realizing the transcendence of God, that God is holy, God is transcends us, God is infinite. And it gets the angels all agitated and excited. So when we reflect on that same reflection, then it leads us to realize that the, the, the real energy within life is really, God is the ultimate reality, the source of energy. God is constantly creating us. And then that leads us to the second blessing, which is we talk about God's love for the Jewish people, per se. How He took us out of Egypt. He brought us close to Him. He married us. He gave of Himself totally. And that we, in response, we can't help but respond in kind, that we give of ourselves totally and we love God back. So this is a, again, this is counterintuitive. It's not instinctive. This doesn't happen automatically. No one is born with this love. It comes through deep meditation and reflection. Deep thought, concentration, focus, until it evokes a response within you, until it resonates, until it echoes, until you internalize it, until you feel centered and connected, until you feel inspired and moved. It changes you, it motivates you, and you feel an attraction, a love, a connection. You feel motivated to study Torah, to do mitzvah because you feel connected and you want to strengthen that connection, you want to strengthen that relationship.
That's what education is. It doesn't happen naturally, instinctively. Rabbi, isn't Anashama, since Anashama is part of Hashem itself, it's a, it's a reflection of Hashem, and therefore it's going to love Hashem no matter what, since it's a part of Hashem. Yes. Isn't it a matter that it's just the point that the Nashama is, is in effect going to have to get to the animal soul and to the intellectual soul to get them in conformance, in effect, to train them to be what the true uh, enjoyment is in yes. life. And, and so in effect, our neshama in effect doesn't have to be convinced of any of this. It's fighting to get back to right. Hashem to be a right. part of its source. Right, but the problem is that the neshama that you speak of, which we all have, is subconscious. It can't access us. We can't access it. It doesn't have any impact on us because the neshama is so deep and so submerged it doesn't speak our language. But we do know what makes us feel good. Yes, but it doesn't, it doesn't speak our language because we don't, we, we don't feel, we don't experience it. We don't, maybe we know it intellectually, but we don't know it experientially. This, these are things which even the human logic, the human mind, the ego mind could appreciate. The ego mind could appreciate that what's a person looking for in life? A person is looking for energy. What's real energy? What's the real energy, the real source of energy? It's Hashem. So if you want energy in life, you want passion in life, you want something wholesome in life, the only real source for that is Torah and Mitzvah. That's something that you can really understand, really wrap your, wrap your mind around and truly get it and truly understand it and get excited about it. The other thing is also something that you can truly wrap your mind around, the fact that God is so great and God is so infinite and yet God takes a personal interest in me, personal, in the Jewish people as a whole and, 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 and in me personally. If you think about all the divine providences in your personal life, the miracles in your personal life, if you open your eyes, every person could see miracles in their life and the divine providence, how, how God is with us every step of the way. If you, feel, if you meditate on that, reflect on that, you can't help but respond. The divine soul, yeah, the divine soul has a natural love to God, but we can't access it. It's not a power in our life. Unfortunately, it's not a force in our life at least not from 99.9% of us. By a tzaddik, it is, because the tzaddik is a very unique person. His divine soul, there's no barriers. His divine soul is totally filtered through, is transparent through his personality, his character, his being, until it overwhelms his whole being. It becomes who he is, his first nature. By us, we have a very healthy ego nature, a very healthy earthy nature, a very healthy... Uh, materialistic nature, and the older we get, the more you know, the, the the more comfortable we get with our earthy nature. You know, every added meal we eat, we become a, a little, we solidify our earthy nature. Isn't that true though? As you get older, people become more accustomed to the fact that material things aren't what you know. Well, it's true, but on the other hand, you also you also become you grow more comfortable with yourself. As you get older, I mean, you grow more settled. You know, you, you don't have that zeal, that idealism, that zest, the change. You, you know, you become a little bit more jaded. As you get older, you lose a little of that youthfulness, of that fire. Not, not everyone, yes, there are the rare exceptions. There are people that as they get older, they get younger and younger. You know, they're 80 years old and they're learning new languages and they're exploring and, they're, and their life is just beginning, but... Those people are few and far in between. We shouldn't kid ourselves. But uh, it should be. It could be. 
truth is, when you grow older, right, you've seen it all, you've been it all, you've seen it all, which is really actually in a certain that, sense. But isn't that when you're recognizing that all the things that you were pursuing weren't of value? That's, that's what's, that the was, age and that was Shlomo Melech. That was Shlomo Melech said at the end of his life. He says, Hakel Hevel Avalim. It's all nonsense. It's all empty. But not everyone is Shlomo Melech. Not everyone has that wisdom or the energy to, to change. But the truth is, that's what older age is a ripe moment to really reflect on, on what's real in life. The truth is, in a certain sense, we are in an older age. The whole world, because on top of, we are like the midget standing in the shoulders of a giant. We are in an older age, and because we, we have made it, so to speak, you know, there are two ways a person could come back to the truth. One is from a position of weakness. In other words, it could be a position of strength. Position of weakness is that you got burnt. You tried the materialistic path, and you simply got burnt. You got hurt. But then there's also a position of strength. All your dreams are realized. You're on top of the mountain, and you're still feeling empty. So you realize, hey, this is not, this is not what I'm looking for. This is not what's going to do it for me. I have to look for something deeper, something real, something inside, something divine, something spiritual, which is really what our generation in general, I think, is all about. Our generation... On a positive thing, yes, many people got burnt. Many people got burnt very badly. But on the whole, I think our generation in general is coming back to Judaism and coming back to godliness from a position of strength. Because we've been there, we've, 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 we're on top of the mountain, we've realized all our wildest dreams were fulfilled. And we realize, hey, we're still, we're still left a little, we feel a little empty, empty-handed. So we realize that this is not what we're looking for. That's why there's such a hunger today, a yearning, a thirst for godliness, for spirituality, because materialism just doesn't do it, and it won't do it. There's another factor, though, that in our generation that we were fortunate to be in, in, in the presence of, of a tzaddik, yeah. which gave us insights that you wouldn't have if you just were doing it on your own. It wouldn't, uh, wouldn't come to you naturally. That's, that's the role of a leader, it's the role of, a, of the Rebbe, to be that beacon of light, that guide, to encourage people and to create this renaissance, to spark this global renaissance. There would be millions of Jews still floating around today. Yeah, absolutely. He made it very accessible. He helped them find the voice, what they're really looking for. The Rebbe is one of the first people to recognize and started actually with his father-in-law, the previous Rebbe. The previous Rebbe came to America, and the first visit was in 1928. And it left a very good impression on him. He said, American youth are very spiritual. They're looking for spirituality. He says, there'll come a time that they, that, that they will revolt against the materialism of, the, of their parents. He says, this is fertile ground for Hasidism. This is fertile ground for genuine Jewishness, uncompromising, unadulterated, pure, absolute, real Judaism. Because American youth are really hungering for truth. Underneath all the materialism, there is a good core. And he recognized it. And what was, what was the 60s, if not a revolt against the 50s, you know, materialism and the squareness of the 50s? And that's when the Rebbe sent the Chassidim to open Chabad houses. You know, realize that the real revolt is really about something, people are looking for something very deep, something very genuine, that they're not getting, and you know, in life, you know, the conformity and the materialism and, you know, career and that's not people looking, hungering for truth. And he capitalized on it and he found, the, helped them find the voice, what they're really looking for. They themselves had no idea what they were looking for. 
So you're right. Yes, the Rebbe was the one who really captured what's really going on underneath the surface. And that American youth and America became the source for this whole Jewish renaissance all over the world. This became the springboard. This became the example that led the way for this tremendous renaissance of Jewish life throughout the world. So the Rebbe helped to help this, this generation find its voice, what it's really looking for, and make a genuine change, but actually a more of a, a, a revelation what they're, what they're really all about, to change the external status quo and to connect with the eternal, the genuine I, which is the Jewish I. Um, so yes, this is a position of strength. So in older age, yes, you have that ability from position of strength. It's a very ripe moment to realize and uh, to spend, you know, to spend those precious years with a tremendous zeal and zest to catch up. And many Jews never had an opportunity to study Torah in their youth. Never had an opportunity and are using their free time as they retire, semi-retire, using their free time to study and to absorb and to imbibe everything that they never had a chance as a youth. So it becomes a very special moment, an opportunity in life where it's not the end of life on the country, it's almost like a new beginning. You feel like a child again, all over again, You're learning, exploring, growing, schlepping your children, your, your so your grandchildren. So that's the way it should be. That's what we have to aspire to. But na- again, naturally, instinctively, it's very comfortable and very easy just to, you know, you grow comfortable, you grow in a rut, and you... You're comfortable with the status quo. You want to continue? On the bottom of A24, it is this love. It is this love, this latter manner of love, which may be generated by contemplation, that Moses, our teacher, peace unto him, wished to implant in the heart of every Jew in the passage, and now Israel, in the verse that speaks of Hashem's greatness. Behold, the heavens belong to Hashem, your Lord. And likewise, in the following verses that speak of Hashem's love for his people. Only in your fathers did he delight. You shall circumcise. With seventy souls did your forefathers descend to Egypt, and now he has made you as numerous as the stars of heaven. All the above inevitably leads to the first verse in the following chapter, namely, you shall love the Lord as yourself. So is telling the Jewish people, the first verse speaks about the greatness of God. He's telling the Jewish people, meditate, contemplate on the greatness of God then realize that this great and infinite God took a personal interest in you, cared about you, and, and wanted to enter into a relationship with you. And that inevitably will lead you to love God in return. Okay, hence... Hence, Moshe Rabbeinu concluded his words in the later verse quoted above concerning this love, which I command you to do. Here, then, is the answer to the above query as to how it is possible to do or to create the spiritual emotion of love. For this is a love that is produced in the heart through the understanding and self-involving knowledge of matters that inspire love. Right. He said earlier that the verse is, I'm commanding you to make, as if I'm commanding you to make you love God, to create your love for God. But the question was, how can you make love? How can you manufacture love? Either you do or you don't. And his, and his explanation is here, no, that he's talking about the level of love in which you do manufacture in a certain sense. It's not manufactured, it's not artificial love, but it's something that comes about through very deep concentration and meditation. It's not something that happens naturally, instinctively. It happens through tremendous effort. So it's almost as if you are forcing the love. It's not natural. You have to, you have to really force it, evoke it, and, and bring, it, bring it to your conscious level. So 
it comes through your hard effort. That's what he means by manufacturing. It's something that doesn't come naturally, instinctively. It's something that comes through using your mind and uh, meditating, reflecting very deeply on these two points. So what they're saying is that there is not an instinctive love of Hashem? There is an instinctive love, but that's not the love that Moshe is talking about over here. That instinctive love of Hashem is something that only the tzaddik really is in touch with all times at all. We don't that. We can't access it. We, we have it, a Jew is a Jew is a Jew. Deep down we have that divine spark and we have that connection, we have that relationship. And in moments of truth it does emerge, very special moments in our life it does emerge, during special holidays it does emerge, on Yom Kippur it does emerge, when you're standing at the Western Wall for the first time it does emerge. You know, the day you get married I'm sure it emerges. But on the whole, we, it's not in our control. It's not our subconscious, it's deep down, it's submerged. We can't turn it on and turn it off. We can't access it. It's covered up. There are too many layers covering, covering up. Our conscious level doesn't allow it, especially our natural, instinctive ego level doesn't allow it, covers up. It. But this love is something that's natural, something that the ego mind could create, could manufacture. You're in control of your mind, and if you sit and think about it very deeply and meditate and allow it to really resonate inside of you and to realize how God is really what you're looking for, like looking for life or energy and vitality and passion. And God is the source of vitality and energy and passion. And therefore, the, the stronger you connect with, with Torah and mitzvah, the more passionate and alive and vibrant you will feel. That's number one. And number two, the more you, you reflect about the greatness of God. And then you realize that this great and infinite God loves me, cares about me and took a personal interest in me and, and redeemed me and elevated me and wants to have a relationship with me, how can I not love God in return? So then your heart, your conscious heart, your conscious mind and heart feels this love, feels this attraction. But it, it, it's a manufactured love. It's like when you think about something materialistically, it could, it'll also develop a certain love. A person will think very deeply about the advantages of having money and being rich. You know, you can think enough until you'll develop a motivation to go out there and, 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 there and, to, you know, and to make it happen. So this is a manufactured love. If you really think about something very deeply, you can, you can develop certain feelings and desires, and even if you don't have it naturally and instinctively. In this case, you have it naturally, but you don't feel it. You can't access it. You're not in touch with it. It's out of your hands. You're just not a tzaddik. Abraham had to manufacture it? No. Ab- oh, Abraham... Well, Abraham, a tzaddik, no one is born a tzaddik. A tzaddik is born with the potential to be a tzaddik. See, Einstein was born with the potential to be Einstein. We can go to school for a thousand years, we'll never be Einsteins. But Einstein also had to go to school. Einstein also had to think. But when he thought, he realized his potential and he grew into Einstein. A tzaddik, Avram, started thinking. Started thinking about godliness. But his mind, his body, his material that he was working with was so special that his mind was just overwhelmed. It became so crystal clear to him, the truth of godliness that it just, that his divine soul just became him, and that was him, and that was his first and second and third nature. That was who he, who he was. It totally transformed his personality. It totally sublimated. His subconscious became his conscious. So it says that Esau and, and Jacob, you know, in, in the womb, you know, he was, he had the evil inclination in the womb, right. and then Jacob was a tzaddik. I'm just trying to question that, I guess, if no one's born a tzaddik, then was he not born that way? The first part of Tanya, we learned, it's not in our power to really become a tzaddik. Until Mashiach comes, until God will circumcise our hearts and allow the subconscious to emerge, it's not within our power. That's why we say in the Shema that these words should be placed on your heart. Why on your heart? 
Because it's really not within our power that it should really touch us on a very deep subconscious level. But if you think about it and you do it to the best of your ability on the conscious mind, you, you dedicate and you focus your conscious mind and you place these words on your heart, then when God will circumcise our heart and open our hearts, all these words will hit home. A tzaddik, every word in Torah hits home. Hits a home run. It's like a depth charge. It, it, it resonates. It's, we, we hear all these wonderful words and all these divine words and all these very high words and, you know, we go back to sleep. Get the thing on the radar. <laughs> <laughs> it's a long-distance call for us. For a tzaddik, it's, it's, it's local. Mashiach will come. Mashiach will come. That's the times we're living in where long distance has become short distance. Over the internet, everything becomes short distance. Mashiach will come. There'll be instant access. Then the tzaddik within us the tzaddik within us will emerge and surface. That, that's the meaning of the coming of Mashiach. What do you mean the meaning of the coming of Mashiach? It's not just Mashiach coming in a white donkey and we all move to Israel. That's just a reflection. All of us moving to Israel and the third temple being rebuilt and there being peace in the world is just a reflection of what's going on inside. When Mashiach will come, our hidden essence, our hidden core, that subconscious, that tzaddik within us will emerge. Once the tzaddik within us emerges and we become whole, and consistent and wholesome, the whole world becomes whole and consistent. Then everything just naturally fits. The Jewish family moves together back home where it belongs. The temple is rebuilt. Mashiach is there. The world is at peace. It's just an, the external will just reflect what's going on inside. Why is the world so messed up today? Because today the tzaddik within us is hidden, is concealed. So we have such conflict. We have such inner conflict and unresolved conflict and tension. You know, the, 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 the gap between our potential and our actual is wider than the Grand Canyon. That's why life is so full of tension. We're so dissatisfied because we sense that the status quo doesn't do justice to who we are. We know deep down there's something so much more to us than, than the status quo. And that's why we're constantly yearning and seeking and struggling and setbacks and, and, and moving forward. This is, this is the drama of life as we know today. But as a result of all that drama, as a result of all that tension, as a result of all our good deeds and sacrifices and good actions... We, the accumulation of all that positive energy will reach a point, a point, a moment when there will be that revelation of Mashiach, that split second when suddenly there will be like an earthquake. Inner essence will emerge. The tzaddik within us, the divine essence will come out and we'll feel it consciously and then the world will be totally transformed and it will be totally natural. Just like it is for the tzaddik. Nothing otherworldly about it. It's there, it's waiting to happen. Its potential is right there today, now. But we can't access it. We've been working on it for 3,800 years. And the good news is, we're a second away. After all this 3,800 years of sweat and tears and toil and effort and sacrifice and good deeds and mitzvot and kindness and love and, and trust and faith and hope and joy, and it's a second away. Because the accumulation, it's all accumulating. In one second, it'll be, you reach critical mass. We're about to reach critical mass when Mashiach will come, the truth. Will, will surprise us and, and hit us all in a very pleasant way, in a beautiful way. Our truth will come out. When our truth comes out, the whole world settles. The whole world stabilizes. The whole world just gets its act again. The Jewish people will return home to Israel. And the temple will be rebuilt. And Mashiach will lead us. That will be the ultimate redemption. It's very real. It's very personal. It's very deep. God will redeem every one of us personally, individually, and collectively, together. There is one at all to the, to the argument that you know, essentially this is nonsense. I would tell that person, especially that person, the person is a Jewish person, I would tell that person, if you want to see the greatest miracle in history, just stand in front of a mirror. 
if you think the splitting of the sea was something, you think the, anything that happened in our past, the exodus, 40 years in the desert, all of that pales in comparison to the miracle of Jewish survival and existence. That a Jew is walking down Park Avenue, even a simulated self-hating Jew, as a Jew is walking down Park Avenue, as a Jew, this is the greatest miracle, that this Jew has survived Romans, Greeks, pogroms, holocaust, destructions. Rome's never destroyed like that. Uh, Mecca's never destroyed. And, and the whole world being against Israel and the Jew and all the superpowers, like one sheep surrounded by 70 wolves. And this was going on for 3,800 years. And look, they're all gone. And we have never left the front pages. Israel, tiny Israel. Who cares about Israel? Yet the whole world is obsessed with Israel. If anyone needs any proof that there's a God to this world and, and that and that there is a moral narrative to history. This is not just some random, random history, you know, about power and money, and that, that's, that's just superficial. What's really going on is that there is a moral narrative to history, and the Jew is mixed up into all the major events in history. Whether it was World War II, it was all about the Jew. I mean, who are we kidding? World War II was all about the Jew. Hitler's goal, he had one goal. The war was just a means. The end, the purpose of the whole war was to destroy the Jew. So much so that when he, had, when, he didn't have, when he had a choice of sending precious material to the front lines or to use the trains to ship the Jews, the, Jew, the Jews always, always got first priority because that was the end. The war was just the means. You know, the Jew is always right there at the center. We've never left the front pages of history. So if anyone needs any proof that history is about a moral narrative, and the struggle between Yaakov and Esau, between good and evil, and truth and lies, and, and truth and moral relativism, etc. This is, this is the Jew, and the Jew is the lightning rod for that struggle. Because the Jew represents to the world, the Jew represents truth, the Jew represents the divine. You know, Hitler said that the Jew gives us all a guilty conscience. We have to destroy the Jew. Because if you want to live like an, like an Aryan, you want, to live, you want to live like a Superman, where right, might makes right, we must get rid of the Jew. The Jew is giving us, giving us all a guilty conscience. Because the Jew represents God. The Jew is, is the conscience of the world. Why is there anti-Semitism? Why isn't there anti-monkism or anti-nunism or anti-Indianism or anti-Buddhism? It doesn't bother anyone. A Buddhist, the Dalai Lama sitting on his mountaintop meditating, who cares? The Indian, Indian smoking peyote and going into a trance, who cares? The monk or the, or the, or the Muslim uh, swirling away, the Sufi with his Sufism, who cares? But the world sees a Jew walking down the streets. <laughs> the whole world stops. Get the UN together, condemn the Jew, condemn Israel. Why does the Jew upset everyone? And when you have 60 different nations coming is anti-Jewish for 60 different reasons. The blacks have their reasons, the Christians have their reasons, the Muslims have their reasons. Mel Gibson has his reason. Uh, you know, uh, Duke has his reason, and, and Jesse Jackson has his reason. Everyone has their own reason. And the communists have their reason, the Chinese have their reason. And this was going on for thousands of years. You say, wait a minute. All the facile explanations, scapegoating, come on, a bunch of nonsense. You can't hate a child, a baby. I don't care if the baby is red or yellow or black or white. A baby is a baby. How could this Jewish baby evoke such, such hatred? Can you imagine any nation in the world where babies would be bombed? Do you know how the world would react? Like in Russia, they were horrified. The Jewish babies are burnt alive. 
on buses in Israel. What's the world reaction? Ah, those Jews, they deserve it. Those occupiers, those settlers. It's unbelievable. How can a baby, how can you hate a baby? Because what's the reason for anti-Semitism? The reason for anti-Semitism is because the Jew is the conscience of the world. Not only an observant Jew, every Jew. The baby, the Jewish child, is a reminder to the Hitlers of the world that there is truth in this world, and there's a God in this world, and there's right in this world, and that ultimately goodness will triumph, truth will triumph, inevitable and ultimate and absolute. And therefore they have to get rid of the messenger. When you don't like the message, they try to get rid of the messenger. But of course, since the conscience, goodness comes from God, you can't destroy God, you can't destroy the conscience either. You can't destroy the Jew. The Jew is indestructible. And the message of the Jew is indestructible. The Torah is indestructible. Unyielding, unchanging, unbudging. Despite what all the clowns are trying to do, including Israel today, trying to defy the Torah, give up the land of Israel to enemies, to murderers. It won't work. It can't work. Think about it. 1948, the whole world was against Israel. They didn't even, not a single country sold a single bullet to Israel. And yet, miraculously, Israel gained its independence. So the Jew is a reminder to the world. The Jew is a conscience of the world. And when you try to destroy the conscience, but it doesn't work, you can't destroy the conscience. And inevitably, the message will get through. The world will grow up and realize the conscience is really your best friend. The Jew is your best friend. The message of the Jew is our best friend. It's the only decent way to live. You want to lead a wholesome life, a productive life, a constructive life. This is the only way. There is no other way. It's the only way that you will be happy. You will be a wholesome human being. It's interesting. All the wholesome human beings throughout history love the Jews. The Tolstoy's of the world, the Mark Twain's of the world, the Paul Johnson's of the world, all the highfalutin intellectuals who hate, hate the Jew. Many of them are religious because they really are not unwholesome human beings, arrogant, egotistical, masking behind religion, and they can't stand the Jew. But any person who has nothing to hide, who has not, who the Jew and his message doesn't give him a guilty conscience, on the contrary, he welcomes that message. They love the Jew. There are many righteous Gentiles. We have the friendliest Congress in American history towards Israel. Because there are many righteous people, many good people who welcome the Jewish message, who love the Jewish message, and, they have the, and, the, and they're not anti-Semitic. On the contrary, they're very friendly. The answer to anti-Semitism is not to pretend or to assimilate or to hide. On the contrary, the answer is to proudly cherish our Jewishness, live our Jewishness, express our Jewishness. And that's, that's the ultimate proof that Mashiach will come. Because Mashiach, what is Mashiach? You know, the Jew was chosen to be the teacher of the world, the light of the nation, the conscience of the world, which is the only reason for anti-Semitism. Now, children naturally hate the teacher. Any healthy child would rather run wild in the streets. The teacher forces you, disciplines you, you have to learn, you have to take tests. You have to... A child doesn't appreciate learning for learning's sake. He's a child, and that's natural. That's a healthy child. So the child hates the teacher. But the teacher is not deterred. Because the teacher knows that one day the child will grow up and the child will realize that the teacher is his best friend. The teacher taught him everything, the finer things in life that made life worth living. The pleasure of reading, the pleasure of thinking, the pleasure of music, the pleasure of art. You know, he knows that the, that the, the, the teacher was his best friend. The teacher is patient. The teacher, it's a thankless job. The teacher is not, it's not a, it's not a popularity contest. 
teacher knows his, what his job, and he does it well. He doesn't look to be popular. He doesn't care if he's popular or not. His mission is to educate his students. And inevitably, he knows that one day, the students will grow up. And that's how the Jewish people understood anti-Semitism. We expect it. We know it. It's natural. Why was Sinai called Sinai? Because Sinai comes from the word hatred. The moment God gave us the Torah, it also gave birth to anti-Semitism. The Torah gave everyone a guilty conscience. We know that. We're not afraid of it. We're not worried. It doesn't distract us from our mission. Our mission is to teach the world. But we know also that inevitably, the child will grow up and the child will appreciate and thank the teacher. That's the world of Mashiach. The world of Mashiach, when the world will grow up and the world will realize and welcome the Jewish message, the seven Noahide laws, the message of morality, of ethics, of spirituality. That's the world of Mashiach. If anyone has any doubt that that's real, just look at anti-Semitism. Just look at the miracle of Jewish survival. Just look in the mirror. And you know that it's a reality. You can't make it up. You can't make up Jewish history. You can't make up the chosen people. <laughs> I mean, we, we, we are 0.02% of the world population. Even if we stood in the, at the rooftop and yelled with the chosen people, who would even pay attention to us? Who would care? It's not we who say it. The world is obsessed with the Jew. The world says it. The world knows it. The world knew, knows that we stood at Mount Sinai. That we received the truth. We received revelation for all mankind. And they know that it's our mission and responsibility to teach, to communicate this message to the whole world. And anti-Semitism is a Gentile's funny way of telling the Jew, you better get the act together. Because you're not, you're not doing your job. Because you're not teaching us. It's the, it's the pupils reminding the teacher, hey, you're the teacher, you're not one of us. And every time the teacher has such an uh, uh, insecurity complex, inferiority complex, that the teacher forgets that his job in life is not to be popular, his job in life is to teach. And instead he wants to be popular, wants to be loved and accepted, and he pretends he's one of the students. It creates a backlash. The students, the students react with fury. Maybe before they hated him, but they respected him. Now they, he lost all respect. They hate him. Look, in every situation, every society, wherever Jews tried to assimilate, it created a backlash. If anything, it created worse anti-Semitism. In Germany, the Jews were more German than the Germans. And look what happened. With this whole Oslo, what's the motivation behind Oslo? Oslo is an attempt to normalize the Jew, to be accepted. Finally, we're loved, we're at peace, we're all one and the same. What happened as a result? The biggest backlash. We haven't had such anti-Semitism since Hitler. And the whole world has ganged up in Israel. It hasn't brought us any respect. On the contrary. And they still don't get it. They're just going deeper into the same failed, failed path. It doesn't work. A Jew has to remember you're the teacher. Israel is the holy land. The Jew is the chosen people. You have to lead the world. We have to lead the world in this war against terrorism. Who's going to lead the world in the war against terrorism? With all due respect, it's not going to be America. We will not win this war until the Jew takes charge, until the Jew leads the war, just like we did in the 70s and just like we did in the 80s. When the Jew was in charge, the world was a much more peaceful place. After Entebbe, we had no hijacking for the next 15 years. After we took out the Iraqi reactor, that whole situation settled down for the next decade. Whenever the Jew acts gutsy, spirited, the world becomes a much safer place. The world becomes a better place. What kind of message are we sending with this assimilation? Like you talked about the Jews in Germany. The American Jew is assimilating like at a, at a pace you wouldn't, can't believe. It's a mixed marriage, mixed this. Uh, it's a very accelerated pace in this country. And that can't be a message that you're talking about, that we've got to show them that we've well, chosen that. Let's be honest. It's not surprising that Jews are assimilating. Why shouldn't they assimilate? 
you're talking about Jews that haven't had a single positive and meaningful Jewish experience growing up. Don't even have memories of a grandmother or a grandfather putting on tefillin, lighting a candle, keeping kosher. You're talking about Jews who are so far, so distant, due to no fault of their own. Why shouldn't they assimilate? I have blue eyes and I'm Jewish. So what? It doesn't mean anything. That's not surprising. What is surprising, pleasantly surprising, is how so many hundreds of thousands of young Jews have chosen not to assimilate. So many hundreds of thousands of young Jews have chosen to connect, to rediscover their Jewish core, their Jewish essence, have chosen to explore their Jewishness and to live, live out their Jewishness and to do one more mitzvah and to connect and to deepen that connection. That's what's surprising, that a generation that has been cut off for three generations, here and also in Russia, don't forget this was three generations of Jews that were raised indoctrinated by communist, godless, atheistic, aggressively atheistic society. And today, the, Russia boasts the largest Jewish schools. There's a renaissance of Jewish life throughout Russia. It's, it's mind-boggling. So that's what's shocking. That's what's pleasantly surprising. That so many Jews who had every option to disappear and to assimilate, young Jews have made a choice, a conscious choice, a conscious decision to identify as Jews and to live as Jews in a free marketplace of ideas. They're not living in any ghettos. They're not coerced on the country. There's no ulterior motive. It's a free world, free marketplace. And they chose willingly on their own to buy into their Jewishness, to own their Jewishness. Up until our generation, you really had no choice. You were Jewish, you were Muslim, you were Christian. Up until 200 years ago, for thousands of years, you really had no choice. Today, for the first time in Jewish history, you really have a choice. And so many Jews are choosing in the free marketplace of ideas to buy, to own their own Judaism, almost like Abraham and Sarah, who have discovered it on their own. Or like the first pioneers, many times the first in their families. And today, you can dare say there isn't a family in the Jewish world today that doesn't have one child, cousin, who has reconnected to their Jewishness in a very real way, in a very meaningful way, in a serious way, doing a mitzvah, living, living their Jewishness and growing and moving forward. That's the energy today in the Jewish world. People are looking to connect, to grow. And that's amazing. That's a miracle. So I think we have to look at it that way. It's not, the, the, the assimilation is, is no, you can't blame the Jews 99.9%. It's not their fault. How should they know? They grew, it's, it's like a person who was kidnapped, who grew up without any, any education. And What do you expect from him? Why shouldn't they intermarry? <laughs> Every message he got was liberalism and internationalism and, and, and anything goes, whatever makes you feel happy. Simulation prejudice and right. thinking that they're getting away from it by... by That's how it started out. That's how it started out. But today's generation, it's not even that. It's not even an issue. It's not like I'm anti-Jewish. It means nothing to me. I'm not for, I'm not against. I'm just... And due to no fault of their own. So I, don't think, I don't think Hashem has any complaints. I mean, what, what do you want from... The, the miracle is the movement in the opposite direction. That so many people, and many, many powerful people, and very successful people, whether in film or finance, in every walk of life, you know, have, have found their way back to, to a, a, a Judaism, whether it's a, a Lieberman, a Senator Lieberman, whether it's a Ronnie Perlman, Steven Spielberg, whatever it is. In all fields of life, you see people have reached the top, and they are proud to be Jewish and they live a Jewish life and they cherish their Jewishness and do mitzvot and study Torah whether it's a Kirk, a Kirk Douglas who found his way back that, that's what's amazing and Hashem should help you know listen we have to leave something for Mashiach <laughs> Mashiach has to do something so wouldn't one argue that Mashiach would come when everybody you know, that's a very 
fallacious notion. Because again, you have to look at it from a bigger perspective. We just see our generation. God looks at the whole, all of the Jewish generations. And if you look at it as a whole, the Jewish people as a whole are ready. The fact that despite 2,000 years in exile, despite the Holocaust, despite communism, which decimated, crushed, destroyed Jewish life, despite assimilationism, which everyone wrote of Judaism, despite all of that, Judaism is flourishing in every corner of the world. There isn't a city in the world that doesn't have a Chabad house where Jews feel at home with their Jewishness, where, Jews, where it's homegrown and flourishing. And the fact that we still are committed and growing, I mean, we, we, we covered all our bases. We've proved all the points. There's nothing more to prove anymore. We've passed all the tests with flying colors. As a whole, maybe individually, individually we may have found ourselves wanting or lacking. But God looks at the whole picture. The Jewish people are ready. Enough already. That, that's one way of looking at it. And the other thing is, you can't blame. I mean, what, what do you want? A Jew who's been in exile close to 2,000 years. He's been abused for 2,000 years. You know what happens when someone is abused? Whether it's wife abuse, or child abuse. You know, it, it, it damages you psychologically. It's called, uh, today they have psychological terms for it. They call it also the, uh, the, the syndrome um, where, where the captors identify the... Hostages identify with the oh, captors. Um, yeah. Stockholm, Stockholm syndrome, Stockholm syndrome, where the where the captors identify with the with the captors. Where they start identifying in Lebanon, those who were held hostage for many years, they started, which is which is really what's happening in Israel. It's like it's like it's like the Stockholm syndrome. You have all these lefties who identify more with the Arabs than they do with their own brothers and sisters with the Jews. The Jews are the enemy. The settlers are the enemy for the terrible crime for settling in the land of Israel. I mean, I can't think of it. It's, it's, it's a cr- the crime of the century. We can settle in Newark. We can settle in London. We can settle in Berlin. We can settle in Moscow. But God forbid the Jews should settle in the land of Israel. It's unbelievable. And people tell it to you with a straight face. It's a crime, and, and they're upsetting the Arabs. It upsets them that I live there, and peace is based on, the, on, on being Judenrein, that not a single Jew will live there. This is peace. If tomorrow Newark, New Jersey declared that it's off limits because the blacks are very upset at the Jews, there will be massive demonstrations all over the world. What do you think this is? Nazi Germany? Only in Israel, the only country in the world where everyone says with a straight face, a Jew is not allowed to live here. It's upsetting the Arabs. So settlers are the criminals. It's unbelievable. It's it's an illness. It's a clinical, it's a very deep illness. It's almost like, like the Stockholm Syndrome where the Jews identify with their oppressors more than they do with their own brothers and sisters. The Jew became the enemy. They hate themselves. Israel became the enemy. And the, the, the murderers, barbaric murderers who blow up babies, burn them alive on buses, oh, that's, that they're heroic. They're, they're fighters. They're passionate. It, it, it's just, it, it's an illness. It's a sickness. So what do you expect? Does God really expect Jews to be normal after 2,000 years? After everything we went through? Especially after we lost the tzaddik that you were talking about? There's no, there's no leader out there. There's not a single Jewish leader out there. Not a single genuine Jewish leader with backbone, with strength, with confidence, with real leadership. Everyone is so hopelessly compromised and you know, everything is political and there's no genuine, authentic leadership. The Rebbe was the last voice, the last powerful Jewish leader. So what, what, does, what does God expect from us? He really expects us to be normal. I don't, I don't think he can have so much complaints against the Jewish people. So let's get back to the learning here. It might seem that to command a person to experience love 
would be either fruitless or superfluous. Not so, however, with regard to the kind of love that is born of contemplation. Here one can indeed be given a command, namely to focus one's heart and mind on matters that arouse love. Okay, so we'll stop over here. Next week we'll continue about the other love, and then we'll finish the chapter next week. Please, God. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.